0: Hello and welcome to A Very Full Plate, the podcast where we're all about real food talk with real parents. Your hosts for today are Amy, a natural food chef and mom of two, and Emily, a professional home organizer and mom of three. Take it away, ladies.
1: Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us. I'm your co-host, Amy. I turn parents into kitchen ninjas to help them feed their families healthy food more often. I'm all about balance, real life, and having fun in the kitchen. You can find me at
2: cookingwithafullplate.com and my Facebook page of the same name. Hey guys, this is Emily. I'm a professional organizer who helps my clients simplify their lives so that they can experience harmony in their homes again. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram or visit hallharmonyhomes.com. Come along with us while we celebrate our small victories and laugh at our challenges. And thank you so much for listening. Hi everyone, it's Emily, and I'm excited about our conversation this week. We are talking to Noah. He is from a local farm here in Massachusetts, and um, he is our soil expert for the month of October. And in October, we're talking about sourcing, thinking about uh, your choices for food for your family and where you're sourcing them from, and sort of bringing everybody, uh, bringing some topics up that might interest those folks who are trying to do a little bit better with where they purchase their foods from. And I think Noah makes a great case for local produce and local greens. And he works at Aprila Farms in Essex here in Massachusetts. And Noah, I would love for you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about the farm itself, how you got started there, and what you kind of do on a day-to-day basis with them at the farm.
1: Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Emily. I So I grew up on the farm. Um, I run El Prilla Farm with my wife, Sophie. Um, it's sort of unusual. Many farmers my age sort of came to farming after going to college and thinking they would be doing something else with their life. Um, hmm. I was... Lucky enough to actually grow up on a piece of land that I had access to. My parents both had other jobs um, and were not farmers, but we worked the farm enough to keep it. To keep it a working farm, we boarded horses, we made hay on the land, and it was something that I deeply loved growing up. And I also had a vegetable garden, and through that, learned how to cook and really developed a love of food and cooking. I went to college assuming I would become a scientist like my father and quickly found that although I love science, I loved applying it more. Um, And so instead of studying ecology as an abstract um, discipline, I really came to realize that Organic farming is applied ecology. Through that lens, ended up finding myself becoming a farmer. After college, a good friend of mine and I went into business together and started Alperla Farm um, as a small vegetable CSA. Um, And we also sold through farmers markets and restaurants. When I met my partner, Sophie, we continued to grow vegetables and eventually brought in a herd of beef cattle, have recently switched towards an emphasis on winter sales. So Hmm. storage crops and greenhouse greens to serve really an underserved part of the year. So our CSA actually just started uh,
0: yesterday.
2: Oh, that's great. I would love to talk a little bit what your days look like there. I'd be curious. um, And then we can dive into the more specifics about um, soil and the earth and sourcing the food from a place like a Perla farm.
1: One of the things that I love most about my job is that there really isn't a typical day, um, depending on what time of year uh, it is. Um, my workday might range between 8 and 16 hours, usually less, usually significantly less than 16, but um, it, it there's a lot to do. Um, and Let's see, this past a typical day in the fall might be um, moving the cattle from one part of the pasture to another, because um, we use rotational grazing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, followed by maybe working on some infrastructure for storage in the barn, so um, maybe fixing something or working on one of the walk-in coolers, and then in the afternoon, we might be harvesting carrots or Cabbage or another big harvesting project until we're done with the day.
2: So um, I have, is that is that yeah, sort of what you were yeah looking I'm just, for? I'm just curious from a, you know for the perspective of like what it takes essentially um, to own and work a farm. But I would, uh, this is something I've always wanted to know, um, which is very simple. But do you guys basically? know what needs to be done how do you keep a schedule of like it's that time of year where we do this in preparation for this because i know so much of what you do is thinking ahead for either the weather the season what the what the animals are needing next or is it sort of in your mind at this point
1: um it's a mix um a lot of decision making happens on sunday night or monday morning when we look at the 10-day weather forecast yeah um and maybe do a field walk at the beginning of the week and sort of look at everything. And then we have a master schedule in an Excel spreadsheet. As boring as it sounds, Excel is a farmer's best friend. And so we've got this big spreadsheet that has planting date, where we're planting, how much, when it needs to be started in the greenhouse, any notes. And we also have, you know, a folder with soil tests. And so, A lot of planning happens over the winter because we're just too busy in the summer to make all of the planning decisions Mm -hmm. as we go. We're going to miss stuff. By the spring, we try to know where we're planting everything, how much, what variety, Mm -hmm. what fertilizer and amendments we need because it's just too crazy during the season. But then on a sort of micro scale, week to week and day to day, It's the weather, and often the weather doesn't follow the report. So as much planning as we would love to do, for instance, we had been planning on Monday that today we would be harvesting our storage cabbage all day because it was supposed to be a beautiful day today, and Mm. right now it's still drizzling. So we're instead working on making the barn ready to bring the cattle in for the winter. Right. Um, So you pivot. So there's always something to do, and remaining flexible is the name of the game, even while trying to keep, keep sight of, uh, you know, the whole list.
2: You know, I think a lot of our listeners, a lot, most of our listeners, I think are moms. Um, (laughs) it's called, it's called a very full plate. So it's basically about like feeding your family, um, as parents. And one of the things that we keep finding as a theme is how success in life is much weighted in your own flexibility and your ability to pivot at any given moment because something has happened with your children or something changes. Mm. Um, and so I think I can kind of relate to that analogy and I can appreciate that sort of always having this backlog of like tasks to do if weather doesn't permit, you know? Um, right, right. So that makes I would imagine
1: sense. there's a lot of, I'm not a parent, but I can see uh, some of my friends who are um, I think I think some of the challenges are pretty similar. I think you parents might actually have it quite a bit harder yeah. a lot of the time.
2: <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. It depends on the day, right? So as you know, like the, that's basically the premise of our podcast. So I'm going to go from here, basically from the angle of what moms are curious about at this point. I know I already asked you a bit about your growing up, how it affected you into farming. I do think that As a mom, I would love to know how to best cultivate this interest in my kids, you know, while still living this sort of modern school schedule Mm -hmm. life. One, do you have any advice on that specifically on how to keep it an interest? And two, do you think there was something you could pinpoint in your growing up, you know, about the experience? Because I'm sure there are people who grew up in farms and are like, no, never. This is awful, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like hard or whatever it is can you pinpoint anything that might have kind of struck you about it that kept your interest?
1: Yeah. Once again, not being a parent, I can't give direct advice, but I can say what my upbringing was like. My first four years or so, my parents had a really big vegetable garden. And as I began to eat real food. Um, my parents didn't really feed me baby food. They would cook stuff from the garden or just good home-cooked food and put it in a blender, mm. and that was what I ate, and so I grew up never really being very picky, and I don't know if that's because of that or what, but um seems like a good idea that kids learn to eat what their parents eat and what's normal for their parents, and um, mm. eating right out of the garden. And I remember as a very young child just being out there with my folks, and it was great because it's kind of unstructured quality time where, you know, you plop a kid down in the middle of the vegetable garden and everything is a teachable moment. Mm. Um, even if the parent's not teaching them, they're finding stuff, they're watching worms, they're watching bugs. They're putting stuff in their mouth that now we know is cultivating their microbiome um, at best. Um, and so I think that experience of being a very young kid and gardening being a normal thing had a profound impact on me.
2: That's great, yeah, and I'm sure that there's some sort of like nostalgia of your childhood that relates to what you were doing at the time. Like some people might be like, "Oh, I love watching football with my dad or whatever." And so I just mean like mm-hmm. you can kind of think back on a fond memories of quality, present time with your parents. And what you were doing was also very natural. So I can kind of see how that would develop for you. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is like sort of the younger you, ex- you expose them to where your food is coming from, the better. Of course, there's that, like you were saying, the biome. So prebiotics, probiotics, building up their gut, building up their immunity through just exposure to nature and all of the dirty things that w- people once feared. <laughs> and, and now we understand it is bogus. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about... Um, like the community side of it, if you don't mind, since this sort of comes up as sort of this bonding time with your kids and it's like quiet in nature time. I, I did, when I was watching one of your videos, notice that you talked a lot about like, you loved the community side of farming. And if you love if you could talk a little bit more about like what that even means to you and you know, what kinds of people are, are in that supposed like almost like tribe that you're talking about and, um, how spending that time together, doing those things, like what you might like envision that does for children. Um, And, and let me know if that's too vague. You just tell me what your thoughts are on that about the community side of farming.
1: Well, I mean, I can talk, I'll I'll talk a little bit about the farm and the CSA as it stands now. Um, So we have about 80, 80 families who come every week um, to pick up their vegetables. And, We do a volume-based CSA so people can pick out whatever they'd like. It's set out as though it's a farmer's market. And so there's sort of a built-in period of time that moms, usually it's moms, oftentimes dads as well, will come in and their kids often are running around. And we have all my old Tonka trucks from when I was a little kid in the corner of the greenhouse where we do our CSA pickup. And so at any given time, there might be four or five kids who may or may not have known each other before Mm. playing in the mud with my old toys, um, which I love watching. Um, And we also have a pick-your-own-garden that is one of my favorite parts of the CSA. Um, So right now we have parsley, cilantro, um, thyme, rosemary, sage, And some sunflowers and snapdragons. Um, And people can just take whatever they'd like on top of their CSA share to use. And when we used to do a summer CSA, we would have green beans and snap peas and cherry tomatoes. And so parents would sometimes spend hours out there talking to friends, talking to people they knew, while their kids were grazing, essentially, Mm. Um, And so that's really a link between the sort of cultivating a fertile ground for community to form and human interactions to form around food. Um, And I think that's really nice um, on a sort of macro scale um, and from sort of like how, how the farm as a business and my life fits in with the community. One of my favorite things is that on in a given week, I will interact with people all across the political spectrum,
0: mm.
1: um, across different backgrounds, um, and farming sort of bridges a lot of the divides that are too prevalent, I, in my opinion, today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I could be, my tractor might break down, and my conservative elderly neighbor who is a master mechanic will come by who also gets a CSA share as a barter for helping me with mechanical work
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and help me out. Meanwhile, I might take a phone call from a high end chef and we can talk about heirloom potato varieties for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as a shareholder who, you know, might be a busy, might have a high tech job, uh, and in between driving her kids to soccer practice and everything else. Um, so I get to interact with all of these different people and the farm sort of can act as a glue within the community. Um, cause everybody eats.
2: Yeah. I, everything you just said was so brilliantly drawn out in my opinion, or, um, you know, laid out in my opinion. Um, I took so much from it. Like I even took some notes because I'm like, yes, cultivating friendships in a natural environment for kids, huge. I mean, there's a lot of people who listen to our podcast who I'm certain have children that turn their nose at almost every vegetable at this stage. They might be like one or two years old. They might be quote unquote picky. But at the end of the day, I'm a huge proponent of like, sometimes I have some friends who have a garden and my kids will go over there and all of a sudden my kids are decided they will try a tomato or they will try something else because they're in this like a camaraderie experience and everyone's mm-hmm. doing it. And like, I hate to use the word peer pressure, but it is sort of like not so much pressure, but y- you become more open-minded you become more curious and you're like, wow, this is just like growing on a plant, you know,
0: <laughs> it's, yeah. not com- it's not well, coming out. When it the
1: becomes normal. Yeah um, then it's, it's much more acceptable.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not,
1: it's not this weird thing that mom is pushing on me. It's like, Oh, this is, this is food. This is what we do.
2: Yeah. Like my friend's eating it. he loves it. It's natural. This is cool. We can do it together. Um, seeing where it comes from. I, I really love the idea of like, you know what, just expose your kids over and over again. Eventually they're going to get curious when their friends are you know, doing the same. And it's easy for us to isolate them from that because we're like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want that. They won't eat that. You know, they won't eat it at home. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so I love the idea of like, that's how you get them interested. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about how the farm bridges that gap between all the different humans and their experiences and their opinions and their lifestyles. Um, but of course you witnessing it, you must laugh at the different things that you, you witness in just one day. Um,
1: yeah, sometimes.
2: And like I'm a professional organizer, so I go inside people's homes. And I help them simplify and go through it. And I was just thinking yesterday, like, wow, I really get to meet some really cool people of totally different walks of life. And I get to know them mm. on a very personal level. And I'm sure if you're seeing these people every week, you, you're like, how's your week going? What's going on? Like, what's what's the latest with your family? And you really have this beautiful experience with all kinds of people. Um Yeah. And I, yeah, so all the things you just said, I, like struck me really well and I'm, I'm glad you shared it in that way. Um, so thank you. And so I wanted to kind of summarize it so I could give the takeaway to, to parents is like, listen, this is a great experience if you could get your, yourself to a CSA um, for your kids, especially if you're, you're working towards a healthier life for all of you. Um, you may open their minds to a lot of different things and they might find it very fun um, and maybe make a new friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you wouldn't mind, I'd love it if you could give us a little bit, since you are the soil expert, um, about eating locally, the health and nutrient benefits to it that maybe some of us can understand on our level, since I know you're like basically a scientist type, <laughs> but folks need like a good, compelling argument for why it's important to eat locally and have really healthy soil that your food is growing in?
1: What I think eating locally gives you the power to do is to vote really effectively with your dollar.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You know, in the grocery store, you have really very few choices. You have basically a choice between California conventional and California organic. And both Mm -hmm. of them are often grown by the same companies. And the profit motive um, is really the main driver. Um, So in buying locally, there are probably, you know, you can get a whole spectrum of growing practices and qualities, um, but by knowing your farmer and being able to engage with them and really find out what their growing practices and ethics are, um, you can really choose the types of practices that you want to feed the food from to your family. Um, I would say what the sort of best case scenario and what we aspire to on our farm is um, really trying to harness the biology of the soil to work well with the plants to produce the highest quality food possible. So soil is an ecosystem in the same way that the tropical rainforest or the coral reef is. um, There's a whole food web of organisms that are being eaten or eating one another or cooperating and feeding each other. And so most plants, they have roots, and the roots are capable of absorbing water and nutrients and sending off pests and holding the plants up. And that's all well and good, but they function at a much higher level, more efficiently with these fungi that are fed sugars, that the the plant feeds sugar in exchange for sending out these networks of hyphae, these basically threads throughout the soil that allow the roots to act sort of like super roots. Hmm. And those can only survive in soil that is relatively healthy, that hasn't had too many chemicals applied to it, that has a good amount of organic matter in it that isn't tilled too frequently or strongly. And those fungi are able to provide the plants with a lot of uh, fertility, um, nutrients for growth, and also can even synthesize some vitamins that the plants can't make themselves. And so a plant that's fed through this fungal network often can taste a lot better or resist disease a lot better than one that is grown in an unhealthy soil that's unable to support that complex biological network that you find in a healthy organic soil.
2: Mm. That makes sense to me. Um,
1: so knowing knowing your farmer and being able to talk to them about soil health or having them like finding a farm who emphasizes soil health often can lead to being able to purchase better quality better tasting food
2: mm. yeah and would you say that this is this like a fragile process as far as far as from your perspective of you know, noting or testing your soil health, uh, you must constantly be kind of looking at the roots and looking at the system to be like, okay, something's missing. Or Yeah. And
1: you we know. make mistakes. Um, <laughs> yeah. know, things, uh, oh, things don't go perfectly all the time. Um, but it's a resilient, it's a resilient ecosystem in many ways and, um, can be pretty forgiving. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that we sort of assess our progress. One is soil tests that we send into UMass or a private lab. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is just visual and looking at the roots, looking at the plants, Um, you know, just as you can tell if your kids are sick just by looking at them. Yeah. If you spend enough time with plants, you can tell how they're doing.
2: Right. Right. Which sounds
1: a a little crazy maybe, but it's, it's no, a
2: thing it's real it, no it's a it's a fair analogy I mean I think you do something enough you really get from, like intimate with it like you just know when something's up mm-hmm. um so totally makes sense to me it's not something I would ever pick up on because I don't have enough exposure but I I think like you said knowing your farmer and knowing that they're really concerned with that will make you feel like confident that they're that they're on it you know um, would you say like, we don't need to get into numbers because people who listen are from all over, but would you say that like prices at a CSA are competitive or, uh, to like a, or organic at a grocery store or say somebody's like thinking about doing a CSA, but they're maybe intimidated by, you know, how much is it going to cost me? Am I going to get my money's worth? You know, um, what are the, what do you think about the pricing and, or maybe the length of time that the the food stays fresher, you know, in what way might you motivate somebody that, in that perspective to go to a CSA?
1: Well, I think pound for pound, um, it is competitive um, and it depends on the CSA and it depends on the model of Mm. the CSA. Yeah. But generally, you're basically making a deal with the farmer saying, you don't have to put all this energy into retailing Mm. and in exchange, you get something that's often closer to wholesale price. At least that's how we see it with our, like with our CSA, cause we don't have to take all of that stuff to a farmer's market. Yeah. So we save a huge amount of money being able to then offer our produce at a pretty good deal.
2: Fair enough. Um, yeah. So
1: it's a win-win that way. So okay. in that respect, it's competitive. The challenge often is the volume that people get. And people sometimes struggle with, you know, you eat out a couple times during a week and suddenly you're not using your whole share. Mm. Um,
2: And that's a real,
1: that's a struggle. It is a time thing. um, But on the budget side of things too, if you prioritize cooking, and I'm I'm not, I don't want to be preachy. I know that it's really hard and I'm not sure I could even deal with a CSA share myself a lot of the weeks because I'm pretty busy. Mm -hmm. But if you don't eat out once because you're cooking stuff from your CSA, you're going to save way more money even beyond whatever you saved buying bulk compared to organic vegetables. Mm.
2: Uh, So that's another
1: way to think about it.
2: Yeah, a lot of what we talk about on here is like meal prep and planning ahead. And so it's not too far off for us to suggest that. I think it's a fair assessment. Like if you can pull back once a week, you'd see some cost savings and you'd also get that sort of healthier meal um, mm-hmm. benefit. Can you touch a little bit about the seasonal eating? I know now you're doing this winter CSA where you've got this sort of market that nobody was nobody was um, what's the word addressing. You know, for people who love CSA, it's winter it, here. We're in New England. Some of us are not. But um, can you talk a little bit about seasonal eating and a little bit about that?
1: We were actually really surprised when we started our. Winter, fall and winter CSA, we were worried people would be less enthusiastic because we wouldn't have tomatoes. We would only have lettuce at the beginning. Mm -hmm. We definitely wouldn't have strawberries. What we've heard overwhelmingly from our shareholders as we supply these hearty root vegetables Mm -hmm. and squash and hearty greens like kale and collards and chard is that that's what their bodies want. As the days get shorter and the nights get colder, Mm. people don't want to have a tomato and cucumber salad. They want to sit down to a bowl of stew or roasted root vegetables at the end of the day. Right. And um, so sometimes... You know, sometimes it's easy to to laugh about the root vegetables. Like, I'm, I've am i gotten lots of the, like, oh, how's your potato and rutabaga CSA going, <laughs> especially when we started. But really, it hasn't seemed like people have been suffering their way through it. If anything, people seem to have more time to cook and more enthusiasm for cooking
0: mm. in
1: the fall. Um, and in a lot of ways, it makes sense ecologically, not just that, people are buying locally and stuff isn't getting transported from another hemisphere. But a lot of this stuff is stored in a very energy, low energy way. So instead of having to freeze or can or mm-hmm. transport stuff, it's just hanging out
2: in the field
1: or in a cooler. Um, and so it really feels like we're sort of working with the natural rhythm of the year. Um, mm-hmm you know, our carrots start to sweeten up and kind of go dormant and will store really well then or onions are in the dormant part of their life cycle. And so it just works. It works pretty well.
2: Mm. That makes sense. We do talk a lot about intuitive eating. So what you said makes a lot of sense to me. And I know a lot of people have that sort of traditional feeling of like, okay, we're going to have stews and we're going to have you know pumpkin this and um, it's fall. So it totally makes sense to me. And I think some people need to almost get, migrate away from this idea that like every day, because with kids, kids want what they like. And when you're feeding kids, they're like, where are my strawberries? You know, it's just Tuesday to them. It's not a season. So it's a whole thing where you have to explain to them while well, they're not in season anymore. And then it becomes this rarity. And then you have to find something else they're willing to eat or whatever. So Mm -hmm. with adults, like we can kind of, if we're not particular, I'm someone who can wax and wane with the seasons, but children are often into routine. So I could see that being hard for moms. But once again, exposure could definitely help that. And it teaches them about that it comes from the ground and it's frozen right now. So it's not going to come out.
1: But that's, so that's sort of a negative aspect of it, but I would also look at it from the positive where there It's really exciting when you yeah. haven't had an apple since last December, and that first really delicious Macintosh or Baldwin comes off of the tree at the end of September right or the middle of september um,
0: right. I then agree it's
1: like you. this exciting new thing, and I think kids really pick up on that as well i i could see I certainly could see the um routine thing being a challenge but also getting kids excited about the new thing coming in.
2: Yeah.
1: Can be a way to look at it.
2: No, I completely agree with you. I think And the yeah, same for was...
1: same for the adults.
2: Right. <laughs> you know, right. if the
1: adults see it as this is the time of year where we only have boring vegetables, their kids are gonna pick up on that too. Yeah. But if you learn to be really excited about it, like for instance, we haven't we don't start harvesting our parsnips till after the ground has begun to freeze. Because they get so sugary and sweet. And we have shareholders who are waiting. You know, they're so excited about something finally being ready in December. Um, And I think that's really cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It it does become understanding. It's all about connection with the year, the weather, the earth. And that is something that many of us are lacking. And I agree with you. Like, when, when it's finally in season to make strawberry rhubarb pie or something... It is something to look forward to. And we can dilute that enthusiasm throughout the year if we're just like buying conventional all the time. And this is a regular thing. And you're lucky to, you know, I feel like we're lucky when we can buy real raspberries, you know. Right. And that that's what I call them, like real raspberries, <laughs> you know. Um, so I agree with you. It's I think the challenge as a busy mom is, well, my kid will only eat these things. How am I gonna get them eat like rutabagas, you know, when they're at school and their kids are eating Pop Tarts or whatever but still you can go one step closer and keep your fruit in season and teach them to get excited. Just like we get excited for, you know, some of us get excited for Santa or the end of the school year (laughs) or summer, you know, there, there is that sort of lead up time. They totally pick up on it. And I agree. It's it is on the parents to keep the enthusiasm going and keep this, you know, and and when we should, why not? You know, um, that's cool. I, I appreciate that, and I, I apologize if I was too vague. I just sort of wanted to see, like, what you know, what do you think about seasonal eating? You know, like, what's your mantra on that? Let's say, as a mom, you're ready to sort of embark on a small garden, right? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about this whole ecosystem thing, it, it kind of overwhelms me personally. Where I'm like, oh my god, I don't even know where to start. I would be afraid that I'm doing it all wrong. Um, what are some tips? Like, maybe three tips you would give to someone who's starting a small garden. You know either the tip is what kind of soil to use to start with how to how to notice when things are going awry, maybe what to grow near each other, like if you could pick out three or four things to grow, let's say they're thinking spring and summer because they don't really know how to do this yet um, what would you suggest to a busy mom who could maybe only tend to it like maybe once a day, maybe once every other day type thing
1: I would. As, as complicated as farming can sound, um, one of the really beautiful things about it is that plants really want to grow. Um, and even if you screw it up real bad, chances are you're still going to get some food and it's still going to taste really good. And so um, I would say don't be intimidated at all um, to give it a try. A little compost makes things go really well um, and is a a little goes a long way. And as far as choosing what to grow, I think that trying to pick vegetables and herbs that will have a high impact in your diet. So things that you like a lot and appreciate and already use in your day-to-day cooking Mm -hmm. are a good choice. So If you really love tomatoes, plant some cherry tomatoes. That's a great way to get kids excited about growing stuff.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And you only need a couple plants. People don't realize how big those plants can get and how productive they can be. And then also just culinary herbs. Even Mm -hmm. if you have just a little space on your windowsill, that's a great way to be connected to a growing plant um, on a really daily level and be able to have this flavor infused into your diet that you would not be able to experience any other way. Mm. Um, And you really, you don't even need any ground. You just need a potted, you know, time plant on your windowsill, and suddenly your scrambled eggs for breakfast just got a whole lot better. Right. So whatever level you're able to engage, it will be rewarding in some way. Mm. And I would say, don't be intimidated.
2: I find that I I worry that I'm going to have the wrong soil mixture. I mean, I agree with you. Compost is probably a game changer um, to Mm -hmm. a soil that's kind of been depleted of nutrients. But I would imagine that you would suggest people start by purchasing a high-quality soil rather than just digging from there. Well, if you're you're
1: doing container gardening, um, if you have access to a spot in your backyard, one nice thing about... uh, soil-based garden is that it's not going to dry out as quickly and mm-hmm. so is less daily maintenance than something in a container. Yeah, um, And it allows the roots to reach out farther and kind of do their thing. Yeah. Um so versus- a container is also a great way to do it. And then if it goes really poorly and you decide to never do it again, you don't have a big hole in your lawn. Gardeners tend to be really excited about sharing their knowledge. And that, once again, gets into some of the community stuff we were mm-hmm. talking about. Finding a neighbor who's already got a few tomato plants or a small garden, chances are they will be more than happy to tell you all about how they did it and help you and check in on how you're doing throughout the season. And I think that's a, that's a great way to do it as well, a
2: great way to learn about it. That's a really valid point. Cause I have these like garden books, but they just sit there, but I end up just asking friends, you know, what should I do about this? Or what are you doing? Or, and, and also then you could share, you can I have some of your tomatoes? I'll give you some of my ridiculous zucchinis that just keep coming out. <laughs> you know? Exactly. That's a, that's a brilliant point. Can you settle a debate for me? Like, let's say you are building a garden box. What do you know about like the type of wood it should be made out of? Because I've heard some things about you shouldn't use like pressure treated wood or what have you. Like, what is the best? Yeah, I
1: would not use pressure treated. I would use some kind of untreated wood. If you can find or afford something like cedar or black locust, that's great. Okay. Uh, you might not find those at a big box store, but if there's a local small sawmill, they'd more than likely have something. Um, yeah. But even regular spruce or fir, like two by eights or whatever from the the hardware store. Yeah will last probably five or six years before okay. you have to replace it.
2: I appreciate so that. So
1: yeah. I would absolutely go for an untreated wood.
2: Okay. That was our understanding. but We were like, how you know, when someone hands you free wood, you're like, can I use this for a garden? <laughs> you know? Or what? But um agreed. That's cool. So And that the, isn't to say you
1: can't use scrap wood. I'm I'm all for using free wood or wood that would have been discarded Um, but you can tell pretty easily if it's got that greenish tint to it and it feels heavier than it should, uh, if you're at all in doubt, just don't use it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed.
2: Okay. Great. That's helpful. Um, is there anything specific you might want to say to people who are raising children, um, in this modern, you know, way that's very busy and, you know, maybe they're intimidated by heading to a farm because they're crunched for time or they have super picky eaters. Um, We've talked a lot about some of the great benefits to it, but I wondered if you had a a voice, you know, amongst these moms and you wanted to reach out to them and say, you know, something about why they should come to the farm or why they should go to their local farm. Um, is there anything that comes to mind when I say that as far as like, what would you do to try and motivate them, you know, with those challenges in mind?
1: Um, I would say to follow your taste buds, um, You know, don't don't take on a project out of a feeling of obligation, but find whatever it is that your area produces that you really like, whether Mm. it is um, grass fed beef. You know, you really, if you've got a really carnivorous family, go find some beef that's raised by someone who's very conscientious and cares about how it's produced and treats the animals well. Mm. or and do it because if you, if you like the product, if you don't like the product, don't force your family to eat it um, okay. and if your family likes sweet things, buy some local honey, maybe go to an orchard, and get some fruit i I really resist the notion that good food and healthy food is a hardship, and I think that's a real problem with how. We talk about food in the United States and especially around healthy food Mm -hmm. um, where we assume that it's this like chore or, you know, you're doing like penitence or something. Um, So I would say start with what tastes good and get curious and try stuff.
2: I love that. I, I really do appreciate that sentiment of like, this is not punishment. This is your livelihood so, enjoy it, <laughs> and uh, you know sp- start small if you live in New England yep. and you know it's fall, like get some apples or you know start with something you know is going to be popular, and then slowly integrate more if you become more interested instead of feeling like, "Oh, I should be doing this, I should be doing that," because moms are very taking on too much, and yep. uh, the whole idea is that we should just do one step further to feel good about it and celebrate that so what you said feels very achievable and it feels fair in my opinion. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, Those are that pretty much concludes the questions I have for you, Noah. If you have anything else you want to share, please feel free to. But I'm so appreciative of your time that you took to be on our A Very Full Play podcast today.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, I loved it. Thank you for connecting with us. I can't wait to go into our next episode where we will talk about some of the takeaways from this interview.
0: Thank you for listening.